you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Mark chapter 7. Uh, we're back in Mark after not that long of a break because it didn't take all that long to go through Second Peter this summer and then a special occasion last week and now taking Mark's gospel back up at the beginning of chapter 7. And I went back and forth this week as to whether we should stick with our usual methodology of a paragraph at a time, uh, because this paragraph is a little hard to isolate from what comes behind it. Um, and in, again, the other version of the Greek New Testament puts it all as one paragraph. Uh, but, you know, once I get in a rut... I just stay in it. Uh, and so we're taking the first five verses, and I think there's some, uh, there's some reasons to pause here and give it more thought than we would if we take uh, the, the whole 13 verses together. So with that said, let me have you stand one more time and Mark 7, verses 1 to 5. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups, pots, copper vessels, and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, the psalmist instructs us to praise you, to praise the Lord, to praise the one who simply and absolutely is, to praise you in your holy temple, to praise you in the expanse of your great strength that we see when we look up at what Genesis calls the expanse, the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars. We praise you, Lord, for what we see reflected of your strength and power and glorious artistry in the expanse. We praise you 
for your mighty power and for the impressive nature of your greatness. And we often need to know that you have mighty power because we find ourselves with mighty problems. But you assure us not only that you have power, but you exert sovereign control of all things at all times. But we would pause and pray for your mercy for the island of Maui that has been in the news where close to now 100 people have been killed by the fire there in one form or another. Many others are missing. Massive loss of properties, homes. Lord, we ask that you might bring some rain, calm the winds, and enable that island and its inhabitants to begin to move back towards something like normal life. And there are just so many countless places in the world, Lord, where there are great challenges, where people suffer daily. And you are in the heavens and do whatever you please. But we plead for your mercy in cases, mercy for physical healing for those who desperately need it and ask for it daily. Lord, apply your mighty power in merciful ways in our midst. Lord, we praise you as we have this morning in song the sound of the horn, the psalmist says, and with the harp, and with the lyre, with the tambourine, great excitement and dance, praise you with strings and pipes. Praise you, Lord, the sound of a shout of warning. Lord, your existence, your presence in the world warns the world that it is an answerable place when most people imagine that they'll never answer to anyone for anything. That doing what is right in your own eyes is not only safe, it's virtuous, it's best, it's progress. Oh, Lord, may they be awakened to the fact that you exist and that you are the king over all the kings, the Lord over all the lords. And not only should everything that has breath praise you, but you warn us that everything that has breath will answer to you. And for this as well, we do praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated.
This past Wednesday night, we were looking at Psalm 1, which everybody recognizes as a sort of introduction to the psalm. Sometimes it's considered Psalm 1 and 2 together as the introduction. Um, Sometimes it's considered that Psalm 1 is the introduction and Psalm 2 was the first song in the Psalter, but uh, we'll leave that to the, the specialists. But most often, and through the centuries, Psalm 1 has been divided by expositors of the church right into the ancient world as being an outline of two ways to live. Way number one, first three verses. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in that law he meditates day and night. And then way two just opens with the heavily contrasting words. Not so the wicked. That is completely different. The wicked. The righteous. The wicked. Two ways to live. Now in our modern times, we instantly scoff at that and say, how reductionist. That's the problem with you Christians. You are such reductionists. Anybody can see that there are dozens of ways to live, hundreds of ways to live, and those who push individualism far enough, which is many, at least in our country, billions of ways to live, because everybody decides how they will live for themselves. So how reductionist and foolish and backward the psalmist. Two ways to live. And you might even have some sympathy with that, but you can't have too much sympathy as a Christian because Jesus adopts the categories of Psalm 1 as his own and reteaches them in his Sermon on the Mount, quite plainly, where he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. There it is. Two ways to live. Two gates to enter, two ways to walk, two destinies to inherit. Uh, Jesus is lockstep in line with the psalmist in Psalm 1. Um, The good news is, you're automatically on one of these ways. And if you're on the wide way, there's nothing easier than to be on the wide way. You automatically end up on the wide way 
Because all that has to happen to be on the wide way is you just flow downstream with where everybody else around you is going anyway. You just move with the whole mainstream of the culture and there's very little pushback to it and it's, uh, it's described here. It's easy. It's easy. There's only one downside to it and that is it ends in destruction. Uh, that's, that's the only downside. Uh, the other way, the other way, he describes is narrow and hard. And you better get used to being in the minority of opinion because you'll always be there. Few, few are those who find it. Now, as I already mentioned, it, it is really a little bit impossible to talk about our paragraph without jumping a little bit in the next paragraph at some point and, uh, and bringing a little of that subject matter back in, and, uh, and we, will, we will do that. Um, but here we just start out, and why I stuck with this paragraph is that the more you think about it, this is a much bigger issue and a much more applicable topic than we will tend to think when we're just reading our Bibles and read by it. Because we actually live in a world where various traditions are pressing on us all the time and inviting us to be influenced by them all the time. And where there's nothing easier than to be deeply and even comprehensively influenced by them without even knowing that it's happened to you. Without even realizing it. Which is where most people in the first century among the Jews were. They had no idea. None at all. They couldn't imagine it, that what Jesus said of them is true. In other words, along the way, by embracing the traditions that you embraced, you let go of the word of God. They said, we did not. Jesus said, you did. You did. That's how it works. They have no clue. That's how subtle it is. state our thesis for this morning this way. Traditions and Jesus both make disciples. Traditions and Jesus both make disciples. See, and the question that this text raises, okay, but in whose disciple are we, Jesus or some other tradition? That's, that's the centerpiece, really. Of verses uh, 1 to 5 here. Um, and in the case of these Pharisees, they don't imagine 
they, they have left the word of God for human tradition. And we have, as I say, compelling traditions around us all the time. So three angles on this. Number one, we need to remember what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, Verses 1 to 4. It's sort of really verses 1 and 2, but you'll notice in this text, verses 1 and 2 would naturally go to verse 5, and it would just be three verses long, except there's a parenthesis in the middle that explains what's going on here. And so I'm going to put that parenthesis with verses 1 and 2, because our point is really from verses 1 and 2. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed, parenthesis. What does he mean by that? The Pharisees and all of the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups, pots, copper vessels, and dining couches. So that's what we're talking about here. That's the tradition in question. And it doesn't sound very dangerous, does it? Doesn't sound dangerous at all. A uh, little, uh, little extra washing. I, I'll tell you, in this sense, my mom was a Pharisee. She was all for washing before we eat. Um, ask us if we did. Did you wash your hands? You're coming to the table. Did you wash your hands? Oh yeah. Let me see them. See, Pharisaical and skeptical. Uh, <laughs> let me see them. Uh, and then off of, go wash your hands. Get in there. But this has nothing to do with that. My, my mother actually wasn't a Pharisee because her hand washing was all about hygiene. And this isn't about hygiene at all. This is purely about ritual purity. That's what's going on here Hygiene would just be a sideline to it and not one that they were at all concerned about. So we're generally talking hygiene when we use our little phrase, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness. You know, it, it sh- you should be clean. You know, those of you of Dutch heritage you usually have that somewhere in your house. Uh, cleanliness is next to godliness. Everything is in order place for everything and everything in its place. It's a great tradition. Uh, This isn't quite that either. This is cleanliness is of the very essence of godliness. That's the tradition. This kind of cleanliness is absolutely essential to godliness. Though, God didn't specifically ever say anything about it. But it's the tradition. And the tradition is so powerful that Mark 
can say this in his parenthesis. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands. In other words, the whole the whole culture of first century Palestine lived by this tradition. And so consistently that when Jesus' disciples get ready to eat, they stand out. What are they doing? Now, think about this, and this is the important thing to think about in the first two sentences. How did they come to no longer be in that tradition? I guarantee you, they were all in that tradition before they met Jesus. He taught them not to be in that tradition. He taught them that does not matter. So stop doing that as if it's a matter of conscience. So maybe just stop doing that. And they did. And now they're getting called on it. Why don't your disciples live in the tradition of the elders? See, this was, this, was a, this was designed to exalt God, to exalt the word of God, right? Literally, these traditions are spoken of in the tradition as a hedge around the law. A hedge around the law. You put this up so you're even more unlikely to ever disobey anything God actually said. So this is a servant of the word of God, not any kind of replacement for it. This is better. This adds This is word of God plus a bonus. That's how they saw it. That's how the tradition presented it. That's not how Jesus sees it. Not how Jesus sees it. Now this is a reminder to us again that Jesus is very much a written word of God person. Uh, We talk on this much, but you can't mention it too often. I've become convinced over time I'm, I'm actually less repetitious than I ought to be. And this would be a place where, especially in our day and age, and the traditions spinning around now, this needs to be repeated all the time, all the time, all the time. You can't remake Jesus in any old cultural image that you want to. You can't mold him into this or that or the other thing because the word of God makes it plain that he is a written word of God, Hebrew Bible sort of person who could say things like he said, again in the Sermon on the Mount, this time Matthew 5, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever 
does them and teaches them, he will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So the the modern claim, you know, that Jesus really has no connection to all the objectionable moral teaching in the Old Testament, you know, things like honor your father and mother that'll come up in the next paragraph. Well, we hate that now. Why? That's the patriarchy. That's what's wrong with the world. That's what we need to stamp out. Not if you're a follower of Jesus. No. No. That's what you need to hang on to. Cling to. Shape your life by those and words like them. Secondly, we need to remember that traditions tend to dominate us. We need to remember that traditions tend to dominate us. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. Everybody in Palestine is good at this. They're all really good at this. There's a tradition. They are good at the tradition. Uh, They've never been so good at the word of God as they are at the tradition. It's the way traditions work. Um, It's actually quite easy to be good at various traditions because they simply come alongside of you and then swallow you down in a hundred different ways. But here's what it looks like to the people as they see Jesus' disciples. These guys are clueless. Now, we'll admit, uh, Jesus sounds pretty good when he stands up and preaches, and we have no idea how he does this miracle stuff. But when it comes to hand-washing and pot-washing, the guy is clueless. He's clueless. And he's made his disciples clueless. He's objectionable. That's how they see it. Now again, we have to just, you know, jump ahead a little bit and let me give you a little experience of how cultural traditions work. I'm just going to read you two verses, actually three verses from the Apostle Paul. One from Ephesians, and then um, two others from First Corinthians. And I, I want you to pay attention to what you think of the ideas in these verses and how comfortable you are with even hearing them, but especially how comfortable you would be with sharing anything like this with a co-worker 
That is, that you agreed in any way, shape, or form with something like this. Ephesians 5.22 Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That's crazy. That sounds crazy. Maybe a little worse. 1 Corinthians 11.7 For man not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made for woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Woman was created for man. I feel that every time I read those, through most of my life, like, phew. Why? Because of the depth of the influence of the feminist tradition on my life. We'll say, where, when do you ever bump up against the feminist tradition? Every time I went to school, every time I turned on the television, every time I read the newspaper, every time I did anything. Because I can tell you for sure, if you met a character in a television show that said something like Paul said approvingly, I can tell you at least this about how the character comes off in this show. Moron! Moron! And probably moron, rapist, axe murderer, kicks kittens, decapitates puppies. That's what people are like who think anything like that. And follow that with novels and characters there and the way news broadcasts are put and that tradition is all around us in incredible ways and we are embarrassed about the word of God and don't really want to stay too close to it at all. That's how traditions work. That's their power. And that's how close they are to our lives. Not once in a while. All the time. All the time. Thirdly, we need to remember that traditions blind us to the word of God. Now, we've already sort of been touching on that. Um, but verse 5. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of elders, but eat with defiled hands? It's 
See, to ask that question is to say, why don't your disciples wait human tradition over the word of God like we do? But they don't understand them to be anything, asking any question even remotely like that. No! They have no sense of that whatsoever. Whatsoever. Jesus has taught his disciples to wait the word of God written over all human traditions and to think about life from the perspective and to live life from the perspective of the written word of God. That is discipleship. I think I watched it 20 years ago when it first took place, but I ran across it just a few months ago. Uh, Mark Dever, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, did, I don't know what the event was, but J.I. Packer must have been in Washington, D.C., and he did an hour-long interview with J.I. Packer at, uh, at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And, uh, uh, and J.I. Packer, of course, is just a... His book, Knowing God, was really the spiritual turnaround point in my life at 19 years old when I read that in the summer of 1977 and read many other things since. But that, that book still, just whenever I reread it, I remember just how it struck me. And so I was very interested in an hour-long interview with J.I. Packer. But I, I wasn't, I didn't know what he would say, but uh, Dever Dever's a very good interviewer uh, from the modern point of view, especially. And so he asked Packer, so who would be the great influences in your spiritual and theological life, you know, beyond the Bible? And I was so struck that the first person that Packer mentioned was the Anglican bishop J.C. Ryle. He said, J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle, his book on holiness, and um, which is a great which is a great book, and I've also uh, enjoyed over the years and used them devotionally. J.C. Ryle wrote um, four little volumes, expository thoughts on the Gospels, short little devotional like sermons. Um, and I don't look at them as often as I should, but this week, that in the back of my mind, I, I did go and see what Ryle said about the opening verses of Mark 7. And here's, what he, here's, here's something that he said, he wrote. Let the history of the Jewish church be a warning to us, never to trifle with false doctrine. If we once tolerate it, we never know how far it may go or into what degraded state of religion we may at last fall. Once leave the king's highway of truth, and we may end up washing cups and pots 
There is nothing too mean, too trifling, too irrational for a man to do and think. Once he turns his back on the word of God. I'm confident if he lived in our day, he'd expand that out a little bit, maybe like this. There's nothing too mean, trifling, perverse, immoral, degraded, ludicrous, or irrational for a man to think once he turns his back on the word of God. To say these competing traditions float around, we got to see an amazing picture of it. It was viewed politically at the time, but that was a, a fairly shallow way to view it with the relative and pervasive power of these traditions. March 2022, confirmation hearing Supreme Court. The nominee is being celebrated all week. First black woman to ever be nominated to the Supreme Court. Tanja Brown Jackson. And a bit smart-alecky, you know, one of the senators. Could you tell me what a woman is? And the amazing thing is, she knew. There's no safe way for me to answer that question. Why? Because there's a tradition that's now got more power and more political wop to it than feminism. It's a transgender movement. And if she gave a rational answer to that question, she would pay a great political price, and she knew it. And so she said, well, I'm not really in a position to answer that, you know, not being a biologist. Say, wow, what is the matter with her? Nothing was the matter with her. She understood exactly where she lives. Maybe better than we do much of the time. No compelling reason for her to sacrifice herself for the feminist tradition. But that's where she and you and I are supposed to differ. We do have compelling reasons not to sacrifice the word of God for whatever tradition at the moment is pressing in on us as they are, as they will continue to do. And so let me just return to where we started. 
the end of the day, the psalmist has it exactly right. There's only two ways to live. If you want cultural, political ease, the culture will tell you exactly what to do. And all you got to do is try to stay up with it and do it. And they'll largely leave you alone. That's the good news. The bad news, according to Jesus, is, of course, that does end in destruction. If you go the other way, Jesus' word was this. Hard. Hard. This word of God thing, the way, the word of God way, the way is hard. It's hard. That leads to life. It's hard. And for that reason, few will find it. And we always, as we go to the communion table, read from 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in my remembrance. In the same way also, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, as I mentioned, I've mentioned many times now, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So the tables for new covenant believers. Spirit of God, cleansed from sin. Word of God, law written on the heart. Jeremiah 31, 33, essence of the new covenant. He goes on to say, examine yourself. And gives all kinds of warnings. Examine yourself. And I, I, I still don't think that I have anything to improve on Calvin's little summary says, I think what he means is roughly, examine yourself for faith and repentance. But that's really simply another way of saying, examine yourself, am I a new covenant believer? Not am I relatively sinless and incredibly spiritually successful? No, 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 no. Am I a person with a heart for the word of God such that I cling to it, follow it, confess my sins when I fall down and try to get back up and go after it. Am I that? Table's for you. But if you say, well, I mean, I want to go to heaven and all that.
But I, I don't want any difficulty along the way, and I won't have any. I'm going to be reasonable. I'm not going to be a superstar Christian. I'll just compromise wherever I need. Uh, doesn't sound good. I would recommend no. No. Struggling to hold fast, that's different. Deciding not to, that's different. Paul says, let a person examine themselves. The men would come who will serve communion this morning. Let me just reread up to the bread. For I received from the Lord that which I also have given to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And having given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the bread. Father in heaven, we thank you for the great privilege that we have to have your words, have your word-backed symbols of grace and hope in the broken body of Jesus Christ. We praise you and thank you that you did not spare your own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will you not with him freely give us all things? Lord, we ground our hope in the broken body of Jesus, the cross, for the forgiveness of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.